Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Machination Log. I got Matt here. Good morning. Matt, how you been? I've been, I've been pretty good. Um, it's not morning, though. Why do you say good morning? What? It might be morning where they are. It's usually morning when I listen back through it. So. Okay. That's fair enough. In some ways, it's narcissistic. Um, so this book that we're going to be reviewing by Rory Sutherland, uh, marketing man extraordinaire, you are the only other person here that I could cajole into reading this nonfiction book about um, being semi-logical at best. What other people not into nonfiction? I couldn't tell you. Okay. But this is where we're at with this. Okay. And I like this book a whole lot. Same. Yeah. I had a good time with it. Um, it, it fits into the same mold as a handful of uh, other not quite workaholics. Actually, that's what makes it a little strange is that this isn't, this isn't explicitly a Tim Ferriss type book. Um, because Tim Ferriss is about a kind of optimization that Rory Sutherland abhors. Yeah. And a logical kind of optimization. Yeah. And yet, um, I think they would get along. Um, even though I've mostly sworn off of Tim Ferriss conceptually, mm. like there's, there's something about the, um, I mean, the book is literally called alchemy. The book is about things that are counterintuitive, yeah. um, and still work anyway. Counterintuitive and in many cases inexpensive. Yes. Like mm. inexpensive in terms of cash, in terms of how much time you need to spend resources on its implementation. Like it's, it's all of that. Yeah. But the problem with many of the solutions is that they're expensive in the in in the sense that if the solution fails, the solution which looks like a dumb solution, it's like, well, you're going to lose your job for even proposing that thing. Yeah, in a professional setting, these yeah. things are anathema. You're not allowed to mm. present them. Yeah, like one of the examples, for instance, we talk we're talking about the penguin. Yeah. So so why don't you tell tell everyone about the penguin? Yeah, well we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. Okay. We're, okay. we're going to yeah. comb through the book and go through a handful of examples sure. of uh, topic. It, this book covers a whole lot of ground. So I kind of want to, I kind of want to deal with it on a topic by topic basis. Let's do it. The, the book is explicitly about uh, professional organizations, but I think especially given that we live a life now that is so professionalized in character, um, it has broader applications, let's say, especially for the two people who are um, talking about it because the two of us are very bad at a lot of the touchy-feely things mm -hmm. that uh, were addressed, or at least were at some point in the past, maybe better now. Um, and I think that's, again, I think that's what's appealing about it is that it, it specifically covers the non-logical and the, uh, the two distinctions he makes is logical versus psychological. Mm -hmm which is just a cute turn of phrase, but it is very powerful. Yeah, and, and, the, and sense and non-sense. Yeah, which well. he had a hell of a time in the audiobook mm -hmm. trying to distinguish between <laughs> nonsense with and without a hyphen. Yeah, I, I didn't do the audiobook, you did. Yeah, but it, um, he ad-libs a lot of the audiobook and mm -hmm. made it hard to comb through the notes. But um, <laughs> I was watching you do, do yeah. that just now. Yeah, but it's, it, it's essentially a perusal of things that are counterintuitive because of the framework that we use to describe the world around us most of the time, to predict what's going to happen. We have a very logical, a very rational methodology. And the problem is that that rationality is, even when it's working correctly, that rationality is bounded to what a machine would think is practical, mm -hmm. which is not the entirety of human experience where yeah. we live. 
Uh, and the other one, of course, is that we're very deluded about what rationality actually means most of the time to begin with. Yes. And rationality ends up being post hoc. Uh, but enough talking vaguely about it. Let's get into it. Uh, the first point that I have highlighted here. Take work and holidays, for example. Some 68% of Americans would pay to have two weeks more holiday than the meager two weeks. He has a British um, dialect, so some of these are going to be, I'm going to be tripping over them. You're going to do the accent? I'm not going to do the All accent. Right. Then the meager two weeks most enjoyed present. They would accept a 4% pay cut in return for double the amount of vacation time. But what if there were no cost whatsoever to increasing everyone's vacation allowance? What if we discovered that greater leisure time would benefit the U.S. economy, both in terms of money spent on leisure goods and also in greater productivity? Yeah, good luck getting anybody to try that, though. Yeah. That's the thing. That's that's what's so strange about that. And there, there have been studies, but even just, I mean, Matt, I, I don't know if the actuarial field falls prey to this, but in the data science world that I live in, um, you don't need to be there five days a week to put in a full week's work. It's just not yeah. necessary. Yeah, yeah, probably not. I mean, more or less for certain, for certain like gigs in the field, sure, but like probably not the case that we need to spend as much time as we do on it. And I think a big part of that is like, like, like just the pace of emailing and answering emails. Like, well, what do we do? We feel like we need to be there, be responsive to clients all the time. Well, it's like well, maybe not. Maybe that's not the case. Yeah, it well, in some measure, it depends on how responsive they are being as well. Uh -huh, There's uh -huh. a reciprocity. Well, 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 it's it's an arms race too, right? So like like if I if I train you that I'm going to like respond to your email right away, you're going to expect that from me like in the future, and it goes back and forth between the client, and the person that's being served. Yeah. So like, but. I mean, I tend to agree with Rory's point. I think it is largely performative. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't know that it actually helps much. Um, batch processing is very powerful, um, yeah. and it's generally this. This is actually something that I've run into that's just annoying at work. Um, and thankfully, my bosses. Are, I'm talking about working with clients because my bosses have been reasonably good about it. It's bad that things are time consuming. Like those are bad things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I take this mantra to an extreme. I believe that any activity where your effectiveness is linearly correlated with the amount of time you spend on it is machine work that should be outsourced. Okay. Um, and I understand that that's, that's a slightly extreme definition for many people, but I mean, I'm a project manager now and aside from taking calls, the primary thing I do is improve the systems that we use. Uh -huh. And I don't have to sit there for two hours to improve the systems that we use. All I need to do is be cognizant of the problem. And whether I'm on the clock or not, my brain is chewing on the ideas. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but here, here's a point from the book. The automatic door opener doesn't fully replace the doorman. So that's part of your job. What you just described is part of your job, chewing on those problems. But another part of your job is sitting in solidarity with all of your coworkers who are working so long and so hard, David. And who are you to change that? Wrong. No. My it's doorman, not part of your job? No. My doorman function <laughs> is to be on calls with customers. Okay. That's the part where we seem like a Cadillac organization yeah. is that they have me on the phone. Mm -hmm. Everything outside of that um, is a useless facade. It's not helping anybody. You know, I can do other things. I can remove the deck from 
the back of my house and chew on the ideas that need to be taken care of Mm -hmm. during my work week. That was fun, by the way. It was removing your deck. Yeah. Demo is is a good time. I got to use a Bergpar for the first time today. It's not always the right tool, but it is always the most fun tool. (laughs) So much leverage. Anyway, on to the next one. Okay. Perhaps the mention of a 25% bonus on their donation reduces the amount that people feel they need to give. Stranger still, it also reduced the proportion of people who gave anything at all. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, I have no idea why this would be. So this was a letter campaign where they were trying to get donations for a cause. And um, Rory presents several seemingly counterintuitive suggestions to increase the number of donations. And the only logical one was the idea that there would be a 25% match for whatever you donate. And the other ones were like, we're going to put the envelope in landscape format or portrait format, for instance, or use a glossier envelope. Yeah, exactly. Just do the, you know, like little signal effects. Mm -hmm. Whereas a 25% increase you would think would be a 25% force multiplier in a homo economicus type way. Yep, where, so you're going to get more people to donate because their dollars go further. Yeah. And but, they don't. Yeah. And the thing is, it's funny that Rory doesn't have like an explanation for this. I have a very simple explanation for Tell this. Me. You get to freeload. Sure. Because you don't, you, you get to donate less because someone's covering your 25%. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, and that's. The, but, but, but what about the other point where people, people didn't donate anything at all. Yeah, exactly. They're, are, are, they're, they, are they just feeling the, that they don't need to donate because other people are picking up the slack there abs- and even the government is picking up the slack? Absolutely. But if they personally don't donate, then no one donates on their behalf. No, they're using the 25% from other people's donations. Like this okay, is sure, this is sure. this is the slough in logical thinking. Like this is where this all comes in, especially <laughs> when it comes to collective action. Yeah. I mean, logic is at its worst in collective action. Yeah. yeah. Um, which he covers quite handily. All right, so so the good thing to do then is to say, look, like, sorry, we got to tax your donation though. So we're we're taking twenty percent off the top. Got to donate a little bit more. (laughs) What do you think people would do in that case? I'm not sure. (laughs) We got to run that experiment. (laughs) Should have asked him to do that one. Well, it could be a corollary of one of the other things that he mentions in the book, which is the um. The opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea. This this could just be the opposite of that, where the opposite of a bad idea is yeah, also, also a bad, bad idea. idea. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's entirely possible that people just don't want to be reminded of the mathematics of mm, what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so the only thing that matters in a psycho dash logical sense is, ooh, look at that envelope. Nice. I'm going to donate more. Well, and charity is a semi-qualitative thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a feel-good operation. You're not. I, I don't think most people think about charity other than the psychopaths over eight thousand hours. No one's thinking about money. <laughs> in like, they're you not. Call me a psychopath. They're, they're not thinking about. Look, I was there too. Um, they're not thinking about it in mathematical terms. They're thinking about it in doing good for the world terms. Yeah. And as soon as you bring money into that, it oh please, it. okay, yeah. I just wanted to feel this feel good envelope that literally feels good. Yeah, come on, one hundred percent. I think it's <laughs> portrait envelope. Ooh, FedEx envelope. Look at yeah. that, nice. Yeah, the FedEx envelope is pretty yeah. good. Quote, I have chosen psychologic as a neutral and non-judgmental term. I've done this for a reason. When we do put a name to non-rational behavior, it is usually a word like emotion, which makes it sound like logic's evil twin. You're being emotional is used as code for you're being an idiot. 
If you went into the most boardrooms <laughs> and announced that you had rejected a merger on emotional grounds, you would likely be shown the door. Yet we experience emotions for a reason, often a good reason for which we don't have words. Robert Zion, the social psychologist, once described cognitive psychology as social psychology with all the interesting variables set to zero. Psycho-logic. Yeah, psycho-logic. Mm. Um, I like the emphasis on experience that Rory Sutherland brings to these topics um, because it is so frequently ignored. I mean, I don't know... I don't know how many opportunities you have to present what, how, how do actuaries present their results or whatever the hell you generate? Uh, I did this a couple of days ago. I presented like some data visualization thing that I made. No, no, that, that was a long time ago, the data viz thing. But I presented a spreadsheet, like a, something that was used to make some table. Um, so I just like walked through how I did it and why it was important. And it was all very logical, very rational. Uh, here's the reason why we did this. Here were the specifications that we needed to, to use. And here are the tables that I changed. Um, so we didn't talk about feelings, if that's what you're getting at. No feelings were involved here. I, I'm just curious, but there is, there's a performative side. And again, this is, this is talking about rationality and its performative sense. Yeah. Uh, you needed what you presented to seem logical. Like oh, that, that was that was important. Oh, absolutely. That's what that's why I make my money. That that's why <laughs> that's why I exist right now. Like to to be to be this um, vestige of rationality and logic. And like, hey, if they want to pay me for that, okay. Um, it's is it always right? Let's not address that question. <laughs> I. It's just it's such a funny it's a funny thing because that is. Uh, and I understand why some people might find it difficult to grasp this specific way of thinking about it. I know that I used to have much more of a problem with it than I did. But my idea, my my idea that I'm talking about this, like you're dressing it up like it's logical. Yes. You know, I, I don't want to doubt your skills as an actuary in this particular way. I don't know how much you had to do to make what you did seem more logical, possibly even than it was. But I'm sure that in order to impress the person that you were talking to, that was the specific flavor that your presentation had to have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Every, everything hooks on to everything else in a very rational way. Um, yeah, that was it. And, and like in a certain sense, th this is what we're being paid to do. This is like, th this is the name of the game. Yeah. Um, is it right in the sense that like, like physics stuff is right? Well, maybe not. Um, but like given all the specs that we have for the project that we're working on, like it's right. In, what we did was right in that sense. So I can, I can feel good about that. That's what, that's what's strange about it is that you don't want to put this on you. Um, it does get treated like physics. I know. And, and even though a business is not physics, it's, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like, like the, the part that gets treated like physics is like, did, did you hit the specs for this calculation? Right. Um, are, are the calcs going to be the correct kinds of calcs? Well, that's sort of beyond the scope of this discussion, <laughs> right? Should it be part of the scope of this discussion? Maybe. Yeah. But like, that's, that wasn't my, that wasn't my responsibility. My responsibility was just to hook up all the wires into the correct places. I did that. Yeah. That, 
in my neck of the woods uh, for data science, it of course makes a lot of sense for what I do to be extremely logical as well. But I think it's easier to come up with what the possible counter argument to doing that would be because I want to deliver, I want to deliver projects as rapidly as possible, but that's not the only way in which those projects can seem effective. Um, They also, uh, even beyond the touchy feely factors, Producing a result that is actually the best for the customer uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily correspond to exactly what the customer requested. <laughs> There's there is it, it's not it's not a form of intangibility, but it's not the the problem is you it, to, to simply be logical doesn't cover all the bases. The customer can recognize that they need more space or more processing power mm-hmm. or something of that nature. And the thing is, it is within the power of my company to advise them on what they actually need. So for example, you could say like, okay, customer says we need more space and more speed. Yeah. But you go in and identify like, well, look, you've had these like things just sitting on your file system for years and you've not touched them. Maybe you should delete those things. And I understand that many people will see that as just a different form of logic. Um, But the problem is that logic doesn't have these, um, or logic does have these value calculations built into it. It has these value judgments. And logic is generally at the most absolutely basic level. It doesn't bother to step back and ask those sorts of questions. Um, and the thing is, it sometimes requires soft skills to ask those questions <laughs> because the people who buy the machines are not the people who use the machines mm. and they occasionally don't like each other. And <laughs> these are, why. yeah, there's these weird, uh, to compress all of that to the idea that uh, even, even just to assume that everybody is looking out for their own self-interest, it, to brand all of that as logic is to give logic no meaning at all. Mm. Like you've blown it out so completely that you, where do you start? You have to decide where you actually start in that equation. And it's a lot easier occasionally to uh, think about it in psychologic terms because psychology is deliberately soft in its interpretation. I don't know if I have this specific item highlighted, but he, um, uh, Rory Sutherland talks about the benefit of a soft correct answer as opposed to a hard wrong answer Mm -hmm. um where our brains are very good at coming up with things that approximate a good idea yeah and machines are very good at coming up with ironclad bad ideas this is the gps example one example of this is the gps to the airport all kinds of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. exhibit this kind of thing they only account for explicitly what we want yep, to, them yep. to address yeah please get me to the airport okay found you the fastest route well okay you didn't take in, into account the variance though like yeah. what if i get in a traffic jam on the way there so the psychological thing is well i yeah i'm not going to take the interstate because i might get locked up there so i'm not going to listen to the gps i'm going to take the back roads that have like a slight like a slightly longer expected time to the airport but it's like i can pull off onto another road if i need to and you could build a GPS that accounts for that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. you would have to crunch that single variable mm-hmm. and you would have to weight that single variable. And this is this is the thing. It 
there may come a day when computers can do all these things mm-hmm. where, where the logical base A to B solution actually works. But the problem is that in almost all circumstances, the system is so complex that it's not even worth bothering with that beyond the absolute most base level of mm-hmm. understanding. Here's a simple, if expensive, lifestyle hack. If you would like everything in your kitchen to be dishwasher proof, simply treat everything in your kitchen as though it was. After a year or so, anything that isn't dishwasher proof will have been either destroyed or rendered unusable. Bingo, everything you have will now be dishwasher proof. I like this idea a lot. I've not managed to try it. I want to do it with microwave. I think some of my bowls might not be good in a microwave. The problem with that one, of course, being that it will destroy the microwave. Uh, All right. Also, there's a slight problem of uh, stuff leaching out from your plastic, maybe into your body, slightly decreasing your lifespan. Okay. Well, thankfully, uh, Sutherland brought this up as an example of a bad idea. So (laughs) (laughs) He didn't encourage the microwave thing. He encouraged the dishwasher thing. Yeah, he did. But the dishwasher is just as bad because plastics can leach into things in the dishwasher as well. I don't know. I just, oh, I like that idea. Right, right. But, but his point, he, so I like the expensive lifestyle hack, but the point that he gets into with this section of the book is that like, like just like dishwasher proof items in your kitchen, we have logic proof problems that still exist in the real world because everything's gone through the logical solution at this point. And I think he goes further in that section to say like many business problems, many marital problems, he, he like, says in in a slightly scared way are these logic proof problems so i I think one of them i don't think this is a marital problem but one example that comes to mind right now is the notion of the engagement ring like the expensive engagement ring why do you need to buy an expensive engagement ring isn't enough to just say to somebody like like look i love you and i want to spend a long time with you like forever yeah well no like that's (laughs) Like logically, yeah, but emotionally, no. Like there's got to be a cost to that statement. So you do it. Yeah. Rory is a huge fan of the signal theory. Yeah, yeah. So, which so, is something so I have disparaged many times on this podcast. All right. Because I am semi-autistic and I'm not a fan of it because I have I have problem parsing signals. Yeah. Um, I, we've brought it up many times. It may come up again relatively soon if we – do is our children learning part two which <laughs> is coming to ground because yeah. everybody who was involved in the previous is our children learning is now in a different leg of their educational journey yeah, so true. i, I want to see what the i want to see what the stir up that, is. that original podcast was what two three years ago at this point yeah it was yeah. hav wasn't a teacher uh, ryan was a teacher uh, okay, yeah. and andy was still in grad school okay. so everybody's everybody's in a different place but i uh i talk about it in the signal versus human capital theory of education, mm. um, where do you do you go to school to learn something, or do you go to school to demonstrate that you went to a good school? Oh hell yeah, the second one. <laughs> yeah, sure, let's go. Yeah, Rory is much more a fan of that second one. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, you get, what are you going to learn on Udemy? What? Come on, man. See, this is what's so strange about like <laughs> Coursera is totally there, yeah. and I've taken several classes on Coursera, and they're fine, and I've learned essentially nothing of value from them at all. Like there, are, unless you have an explicit reason to learn a certain thing, mm-hmm. enriching yourself with like college level courses is just a waste of time. Like it just doesn't matter. Like unless you're doing it for entertainment value in some dimension. Mm-hmm. 
it doesn't seem to help with anything. All right. Like, well, I've tried. Demolishing a deck is a waste of time too, David. I don't you know. because no, I can put a cool new deck on. Well, I can have cool new knowledge by but taking a What are you going to do with it? Who cares what I'm going to do with it? What are you going to do with your deck? Sit on it? I'm what? just going to sit on my new education. Come on. That's the problem is that you sit on the education and then you forget everything. And like I took yeah, but but I had that education for a number of weeks, and I felt oh so good about myself for for having done so. And guess what? I went to so many parties and impressed so many people. And David, wasn't that enough? Uh, no, because <laughs> I don't. Mostly because I don't believe you. Mostly because I think that's a lie. Um, not, not lying, David. I'm just presenting the argument what? for. I don't. I don't think anybody can. I think this is always a straw man, but in reverse, whatever an opposite of a straw man is. A steel man. But it's not, it's, it's not that form of it. It's Mm. where you are attempting to whatever this has gone down. Maybe the opposite of a straw man is a straw man too. Yeah. I'm just calling you a liar basically. (laughs) I'm, I'm saying that this is, this is a nonsensical idea. Like if you're way into birds and you want to learn about birds in a class, it's fine. Sure. But like I took a class on machine learning. Mm-hmm. This is like a year ago, I think. Yeah, and it's a very, very popular class. Mm-hmm. Taught by Andrew Ng, the, the thirty to eighty year old man. Yeah, yeah. Just of absolutely unknown age. Yes. And I, that class, I I did that class from end to end. I did all of the assignments, mm-hmm. and I think machine learning might be a scam. I think that's what I got out of it, okay. was that I'm not worried about AI anymore. Yeah. Actually, Rory Sutherland talks about that in his book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he says something like, I'm kind of skeptical. Yeah. It's just like, I, all, all I learned in that class, for the most part, all I remember from that class mm-hmm. is that you have to do a lot of hand-holding to make machine learning work correctly. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some specific things that it does extraordinarily well, and that's it. It doesn't do anything else very well. Um, <laughs> like it, it turns out to be less of an effective model than one might suppose. And that's not because that's not even necessarily because the human brain is somehow superior to it. It's because there are a lot of problems that are just very difficult to solve. Yeah. Um, we'll get to driverless cars at some point. I, I have faith yeah. in that. And, and, and did you highlight the section about Ole Peters, the good mathematician that Rory Sutherland knows? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, so, that's, so that's pertinent to what we're discussing right now. Peters basically says like, like, yeah, the second rate mathematicians in your company will be like, let's run a linear regression analysis. <laughs> okay. You can do that, but the real results are going to be his words. Bollocks. Bollocks. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I 100% agree with that assessment. <laughs> Uh, this was the penguin. Here we go. Okay. Penguin's coming. I recently had a meeting with a client where I learned that a customer prize draw to win free energy for a year worth over a thousand pounds received <laughs> 67,000 entries. The subsequent draw where you could win a cute penguin nightlight with a value of 15 pounds received over 360,000 entries. Get so that that's penguin. about five times as many. Oh yeah. One customer even turned down an offer of a 200-pound <laughs> refund on their bill, saying, no, I'd rather have a penguin. Even though I know this is true, so great is my desire to appear rational that I would find it very hard to stand in front of a board of directors and recommend that their advertising should feature rabbits or perhaps a lemur family because it sounds like nonsense. Yeah, and this is the guy who, at his TED Talk, wore a shirt with three different colors. 
His he shirt did. was red, blue, and green. Oh, it pops so good. Though. It pops so good. But this, this is the guy that would have a hard time recommending the Penguin to the board of directors, even though he's got this data. Yeah. Like this is, if anyone's going to implement solutions like the ones that are being proposed in this book, it's the author of this book. And yet look at him saying like, I'm shaking my boots. I can't do this. I can't propose this. I'm the king of psychological solutions. And yet can't do it this is why this is why people don't do these kinds of things yeah it's it's where and this is another example where it's quantity versus quality Mm -hmm. mathematics Mm -hmm. versus he doesn't like the word emotion i don't have a problem using the word emotion here it's because it's not this isn't even a specifically you know psychologic doesn't cover this domain which is why he is which is why he has this caveat where even he's embarrassed by this result. <laughs> he gets a whole lot into Evo psych theory in uh-huh. this book. Some of it, uh, Evo psych is a, is a hairy domain. So it's, it's of limited value, but the stuff, a lot of the, the products of it um, in this book are, are somewhat beside the point. So I'm not, I'm not terribly worried about that yeah. corrupting the rest of it. This is a weird thing. Like, you can, in fact, buy Penguin Nightlights. They're not exclusive to the power company. That Okay, says you. But yeah. I think he continues on this section by saying something like, well, the Penguin Nightlight's not for me, it's for my daughter. And I'd rather have the 15, do- the 15 pound thing for my daughter rather than the 200 pound credit on my account. So, but, and that just gets shipped straight to you. You don't need to do any more work. So you just get the Penguin Nightlight and you get to do a nice little thing for your daughter instead of having like the 200 pound credit. It's like, I, I don't care, like whatever. Yeah. So that's, that's probably what's happening here. Still doesn't make sense. No. Still doesn't make <laughs> sense, but, but I guess that's what's going on. No, it doesn't. Well, in this, in this case, it's just so profound because the difference, the difference is so staggering. It's not like, you know, it's not a $20 rebate or mm-hmm. a $15 Penguin. Mm-hmm. It's a two hundred dollar rebate or a fifteen dollar penguin yeah Uh, this this goes this is probably related to the whole thing where it's like you can feel cash leaving as opposed to like like the digital equivalent of cash yeah so this this is another step further removed from like cash like physical cash versus digital cash versus a credit on your power account that's so abstract i can't feel that however that penguin i can feel that penguin my, my, my daughter is going to be so happy when i give her that penguin look i don't got time to think about this stuff don't give me the credit give me the penguin see this is just an argument for giving people more vacation so they have more no, no. time to think about what they're doing so you don't no, no no listen you don't want people to think you don't want the people to think or else i'm again this is we're talking cross purposes here this <laughs> rory sutherland is more optimistic about society mm, than, okay than this version of you yeah. that's coming out of me right now yeah, yeah, yeah it's attacking me sorry i'll try to rein that back in give the people more penguins oh yeah absolutely i'm not opposed to the penguin I'm just saying you should probably take the 200 bucks and buy yourself a nice penguin with it. Okay. Yeah. You can get a really nice penguin for $200. Yeah. 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 You can get a nice penguin for $50. So I don't even want to imagine the kind of penguin you could get. (laughs) Let's move on to this next highlight. This is a book written in defense of things that don't quite make sense, but it is also a book that conversely attacks our fetishization of things that do. 
Once you accept there may be a value or purpose to things that are hard to justify, you will naturally come to another conclusion, that it is perfectly possible to be both rational and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, you don't want to be rational all the time. Yeah. And this, again, this is this unbounded definition of what rationality mm-hmm, is. I mm-hmm. think I, I, I think I cover this, but just in case I don't, to hint at it, there's a very big difference between a dispersed probability that is in your favor and a serial probability that yep. is in your this favor. This is exactly where my mind went. Where yep. my mind went just now when you were reading this. You're talking about the the coin flipping game where it's like flip that damn coin as quickly as possible because I got a positive expectation value. Yeah, you start with a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. you flip the coin, and you either lose fifty bucks or gain sixty. Yep. And economicus brain says just flip the coin as fast as you possibly can. Yes. But the thing is your intuitive brain understands that there's a really strong chance you're not going to be able to play that game for very long. Yeah, that's correct. I, I mean, it, it, th- this, is, this is a whole, like, this situation never actually exists. So, like, like we're not going to do that. If, if, in fact, I could flip the coin as quickly as possible, it makes sense to do it. But in practice, that coin takes a lot longer to flip, and you might go broke, like, in the first couple flips. Yeah. So, like, well, if I only have 10 plays of this game... I could be broke after those first 10 plays. Um, well, I think that's the point of bounding it um, with a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. starting with a hundred dollars as your total. So like if you can, if you can go negative with it and you can do, you know, you can do what he says and, you know, flip it as fast as you possibly can mm-hmm. and get as many, et cetera. So if you can actually do that, which this is why, you know, <laughs> the, the lessons of risk aversion are for the rich only. You have to be able to absorb the pain in mm. order to reap the benefits, even of certain eventual rewards. Yeah. If you have a hundred dollars and you have to live on a hundred dollars, you don't flip that. You don't flip that coin. No, not even once. Yeah, it's not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of people intuitively understand that. Yes. Um, but then we use math that doesn't intuitively understand that. Yeah, and, and then and it's like, you're an idiot for not playing the game because the game has a positive expectation, so you should do it. Well, no, I'm not an idiot because like the one move matters. It's not the expectation that I'm playing on. It's, the, it's like the first result of that flip. Yep. And as the most confusing saying I've, I still don't understand it at all goes, to use it the way that I understand it, <laughs> um, you only live once. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know why people use that as a justification to do things that are dangerous or stupid. That uh-huh. seems like the opposite of a justification yeah, to yeah, do those you, things. You live once, yeah. so maybe try to preserve that life. Yeah, maybe yeah. don't fucking yeah. do crazy ass bullshit. Yeah, and you're, you're talking to the wrong guy about this too, by the way. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I, I figured I, I yoloed pretty hard there for a little bit. No, I know. I figured you were going to use this as a jumping pad for yeah. that because this is the perfect analogy to mm-hmm. that. Yeah. No. Well, what I did was I I gave up the stable career to flip the coin, and the reason I flipped the coin, the, the flipping the coin meaning like I tried to be my own boss, tried to be an entrepreneur. Um, and sure, like there in a certain sense is a positive expectation value there, or, or like you can model it that way and say like, well, you flip that coin enough, you try enough and you will eventually come out on top. Okay. Yes. In theory, that's correct. If, if the model's correct, then l- let's assume the model's correct. 
then okay, you can do that. Problem is that I didn't have like years and years to do that. I just had like a little bit of time. And like after, after that little bit of time, turns out that it wasn't working. So in a certain sense, I made the rational decision to try it, like to try that whole like flipping the coin thing. There's an outsized upside. Yeah, outsized upside. But like I didn't need that huge upside. <laughs> like that, that was that was nonsense to do that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to no longer be flipping the coin. Is what I'm saying yeah. right now. And what's funny is that you can use logic to understand that, mm-hmm. but you can under you can use logic to understand either side of the argument. Mm-hmm. You can excuse your emotional need to succeed in a radical way mm-hmm. with the logic that the upside is very large. You can also use a logical explanation for why you should opt not to flip the coin at all mm-hmm. in the case of a world in which you don't get to flip it that many times and the poss I mean in your case it wasn't the possibility of ruin necessarily but it um but the odds were against you so who's which side is logical there like what does what does the word logical mean there it just depends on which way you want to abuse the term mm-hmm. yeah it, well Something that came out of you during that discussion was like, if the model is right. I didn't know whether the model was right, but I just twisted the model until it was like, oh, well, makes sense. (laughs) I wanted a certain outcome. I wanted a certain, like, to be able to justify my actions. So I said, like, okay, assume this and assume that and boom, like, oh, okay. Well, the only thing that makes sense here is to quit the stable profession and go be crazy. Yeah. And that's what I did. So, So that was my use of logic there. The logic could point you in either direction, depending on how you want to like how you want to twist it. Yeah, it's the variables, the variables you want to start with. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so decide the variables more logically. Okay, well, I mean, where there are so many things to account for mm. that at some point logic doesn't yield anything for you. You you have to bring some degree of intuition to bear. Or you just spend the whole time connecting dots. Um, Which is fun. It can be. (laughs) I mean, look, I journal to do that exact thing, to draw out intuitions into, you know, active forms to probe them. Yeah, but but eventually it's got to manifest as a decision. And the thing is, even the way that you approach, even the way that you attempt, because you you start with intuition. You have no choice but to start with your a priori. Sure. Even if you're applying logic to those, the direction you're choosing to apply that logic, and I don't think Sutherland talks about this explicitly. I'm sure there's a book written on it, though, because um, there's an obsession with science among science fans mm-hmm. um, that science is logical in this way. And science is logical, but as we just described, all you have to do is set the variables slightly differently, and logic takes you in two different directions. Mm-hmm. So science has values. Like you have to decide what you're going to study. That's, that's the easiest avenue to get people to understand this is that you have to value something to choose to study it. So what science chooses, uh, what the field of science, the people, the scientists choose to study is a value proposition. It's not logical. Mm-hmm. in the or it's logical in a totally irrelevant sense it's logical in the sense that okay this is something we don't know but that we could potentially disprove mm-hmm. but that leaves a massive field of options open 
and you have to narrow them down somehow. Yeah. Uh, w- one of the examples in this book is like the a Nobel Prize winning math- mathematician is like, okay, well, I used intuition to find the problem, but then I used logic to solve the problem. Yeah. I, I could only identify the problem through intuition. Yeah. I mean, many, many inventions come about on accident yeah. because we are allowed to honor the result without knowing how we got there. <laughs> no, you're not allowed to use penicillin. We discovered it on accident, so you can't do that. It's illegal. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. And there <laughs> or are, x-rays or microwaves. And there are domains where that is absolutely the way things are. Mm-hmm. And there is... There, wait, wait, wait a second. Could you provide an example of that? Medicine is an example of that. Yeah. Because it has to be... I mean, it's not quite in the same ballpark as penicillin because mm-hmm. penicillin is... Um, I guess that's not fair to the FDA. The FDA is testing is testing rigorously for the results. Um, all right, maybe I lied. I don't know. Maybe everybody is fine with that. But it seems weird <laughs> that he would bother to bring it up um, yeah. if it were not that way. Um, where is it actually an issue? This is a strange way to turn this on its head. Where is it an issue that you can know that something works and you're not allowed to use it? I'm thinking right now. Oh, the work thing was literally the first example. Mm-hmm. Vacation. There have been studies done where oh, sure. where knowledge workers, if you hack Friday off, they're just as productive. Mm-hmm. Like not even in just the general employee satisfaction sense. They get as much, if not more, work done. Yeah, but that that might be true at that fancy place that did the study, but it's not true at my office. Yeah, they says don't. everybody. They, and I'm going to lose my job if I try to implement that. So I'm not going to. So that's an example of it works in practice, but not in but theory. But not in theory. Yeah. yeah. So so I can't I can't demonstrate. I can't go up in front of my bosses and propose that. So it doesn't happen. Footnote on that study, uh, the group that demonstrated increased both employee satisfaction and general productivity. Uh, they went back to a five-day work week. So <laughs> anyway. Um, right, I'm retiring right yeah. now. <laughs> uh, uh. While in physics, the opposite of a good idea is generally a bad idea, in psychology, the opposite of a good idea can be a very good idea indeed. Both opposites often work. I find this to generally be true. This this is part of a more grand thesis that Rory has about um, never appealing to average. Yeah. The middle of the road is virtually always the wrong path. Mm-hmm. And I tend to agree with this. I find uh, there's there are a lot of quotes that have something to do with this. Um, as despicable and unreadable as Ayn Rand is, she has a very good quote about that, where the idea that there is an argument on one side and the other does not mean that the answer is somewhere between them. It's not that you necessarily have to take a side, although sometimes that's what it is. It is the commitment itself is what makes something effective. Um, But muddling in between Mm -hmm. to try to satisfy everything instead of simply polarizing and being more effective in one domain or the other, you are almost certainly doomed um, to failure when you do something like that because you cannot actually cater to the strengths of um, either your audience or, eh, I guess it is specifically your audience in this mm-hmm. case. He brings up an example of uh, the OXO Good Grips company, which has taken the kitchen utensil universe by storm, at least as far as I can tell. With big rubbery grips yeah. designed for an arthritic wife. Yeah, they mm-hmm. were designed originally because uh, 
Gerald Oxo or whatever the guy's name is. <laughs> I have no idea what the guy's name is. Uh, Definitely might, wasn't that, but okay. might, yeah, they might have mentioned it. They might have mentioned it in the book. Yeah. But uh, yeah, his his wife was disabled mm-hmm. in a very specific way that required yeah. big grips. Um, but it turns out that everyone is kind of disabled all the time. Not all the time, but at sometimes, and in particular in the kitchen, like you've got wet hands or oily hands or something like that. Yeah, and and, and what you're getting at too is like like Rory talks about how the physical world is pretty well designed in many cases. Like like for instance, you have door handles instead of door knobs now. Well, that's good because sometimes I'm disabled in the sense that I'm carrying a cup of coffee, so I want to use my elbow to open the door instead of my hand. Yeah. So that that's like like please design the world better for me. Thank that, you. I I'm embarrassed to admit that I never actually considered that specific use for um <laughs> for what, elbow opening with a door handle. Not no, just the entire concept of building a world that is disability friendly on the pretense that everybody is occasionally disabled <laughs> in these various ways. Yeah. Like I don't know why that never occurred to me, mm. but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's generally not that difficult to accommodate those things. So you might as well do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not like I wasn't doing that in some intuitive sense in the way that I design spaces. I You did it at your old house. You, you put a kick plate up in your garage door, the door to your garage. You put a push plate up there. Yeah. You remove the handle because like, well, because I'm disabled Because me without sometimes. arms can't open that door. Exactly. Just open that door with your butt. Yeah. Good. Good. Just do it. Thank you for saving me. I wasn't going to come up with an example in time, <laughs> but but yeah, it's just is a neat is a neat idea. Yep. What people want is a really cool vacuum cleaner, Dyson. Oh, can I read the second one? Sure. All right. And the best part of all this is that people will write the entire thing for free, Wikipedia. And so I confidently predict that the great enduring fashion of the next century will be a coarse, uncomfortable fabric (laughs) which fades unpleasantly and which takes ages to dry. To date, it has been largely popular with indigent laborers. (laughs) Jeans. Number four. And people will be forced to choose between three or four items. McDonald's. And best of all, the drink has a taste which customers say they hate. Red Bull. He goes into a lot of detail about Red Bull. Yeah. Number six. And just watch as perfectly sane people pay $5 for a drink they can make at home for a few pence. Starbucks. No sane person would have invested a penny in these schemes. The problem that bedevils organizations once they reach a certain size is that narrow conventional logic is the natural mode of thinking for the risk-averse bureaucrat or executive. There's a simple reason for this. You cannot be fired for being logical. If your reasoning is sound and unimaginative, even if you fail, it is unlikely you will attract much blame. It is much easier to be fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. Yeah, so so the last minute and 30 seconds or so is the synopsis of this book. Like yeah. that, that's basically it right there. Yeah, um, if you think in a very, very specific way, you use the a priori's at your disposal and you just say, I went from A to B. Mm-hmm. Businesses like that, yeah, they're fans, um, and it's not hard to see why it reduces the chance of catastrophic failure. Exactly right, and and, and this is this is counter to the so-called logic that we were talking about with respect to my decision to be an entrepreneur before. Like the the reason people do this kind of stuff is so that they can enjoy the stability provided by a regular job. Yeah, and that's fine. 
Like that's that's how <laughs> that's probably how we should be doing this. Yeah. But it leads to a lot of inefficiencies. Yeah. And that's the whole point. And that that's that's sad. But you know what? Works. And so. and to be fair, at the specific level of the chain that both of us are on, um, I guess me less than you now. I do have manager in my name. Um, it's not our Reflex. job. Reflex, but yeah. okay. That's just like it's, <laughs> it's the one I got. Um we're not we're not paid we're not paid to lead. Right, we're right. paid to do what we've been told to do. Yeah, absolutely right. So executing on that thing, there's only so much leverage we have to be creative about the way that we do those things. Mm-hmm. I very begrudgingly apply as much of it as I can get away with. Yes. I believe the purpose of work is to stop working. But that's that's only within my own domain. That's not even specific to um, what the customer provides. I, I do mostly have to fulfill the orders, and I can only recommend so much mm-hmm. outside of the process, which is very well defined. Um, and in the actuarial world, I have to imagine there's not a whole lot of leeway there. Uh, yeah, not that I've seen yet. Yeah. It, if the leeway is there, it's not mine. I haven't earned the leeway yet. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any idea how many rungs up you got to get for that? Um, well, before you get to decide what the software packages are, <laughs> it, it's going to be a couple of years. Yeah. I'll leave it there. Oh, I like this idea a lot. Robert Trivers gives an extraordinary example of a case where an animal having conscious access to its own actions may be damaging to its evolutionary fitness. When a hare is being chased, It zigzags in a random pattern in an attempt to shake off the pursuer. This technique will be more reliable if it is genuinely random and not conscious, as it is better for the hare to have no foreknowledge of where it is going to jump next. If it knew where it was going to jump next, its posture might reveal clues to its pursuer. Over time, dogs would learn to anticipate these cues with fatal consequences. Ellipsis. The late David Ogilvy, one of the greats of the American advertising industry and the founder of the company I work for, apparently once said, quote, the trouble with market research is that people don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. And Ogilvy obviously is using this somewhat cynically to describe the difficulty of his profession, but it ties very much into this idea that it there's a perverse incentive that is very infrequently discussed to not understanding your own motivations. Yeah, we have to be mysteries to ourselves. Or we are mysteries to ourselves, not that we have to be. And this comes back to things like the diamond ring uh-huh. for marriage, where the desire to give the person you love this thing, which they value less than two months of your pay in purely utilitarian terms. Mm. Um. There's a second order excuse why you would do something like that because it demonstrates a commitment. It shackles you to that person. Mm. Even if the person you're giving it to can't use that shackling, mm. um, this, is, this is something that you couldn't necessarily explain to anyone um, straight out. Like Most people wouldn't assume that that's why they were doing it. They would say something like, oh, I don't know, tradition. <laughs> like, and that would be sufficient to explain the reasoning. Your brain's actually doing all of this math. It just doesn't let you in on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really powerful. And th- the thing is, it's very easy to be cynical about that. And the key is to not be cynical about that. <laughs> it's, to, it's, to recognize, it's to recognize that your brain 
um, not only has those functions for a reason, but even if that reason is ancient and unuseful now, um, to be able to exploit it um, for fun and profit. Mm -hmm. So, so <laughs> if you start catching on to like all, okay, I'm going to provide a better answer than simply tradition. Here are all the reasons. Well, now you're the hare that anticipates its own motion, and yeah. now you're going to get eaten by that dog. Well, or you, you break down what the ring is for and you yeah. come up with a much more optimized thing to give to your fiance, mm -hmm. which does not have the intended effect. Like, for instance, a, a ring that wasn't mined, but rather was generated in a lab somewhere. Ooh, she finds out that you got her one of those rings. It's all over. Well, one of the, one of the fun versions of that is, and, and thankfully this one, the signal effect does still seem to be there to at least some extent because these... Not all of these marriages end in divorces, but you know when you give your <laughs> when you give your spouse a um a uh, like titanium ring, yeah, it's a superior material. Ooh, the gold, you better wash out for that. <laughs> it's, oh, no. Again, it depends on who you're trying to marry, yeah. and hopefully you're on a sufficiently close wavelength that you don't need this. Yeah, I, I I don't know, man. I think it's just doomed. Like if you're both on that same wavelength, you're both the hair that has the intuition into what's going on in your brain. You you posture up. You know, like what's what, what which direction you're gonna head. You're both gonna get eaten together. I guess <laughs> it's all over. This quote's about wondering why people don't like standing on trains. Perhaps it's because it's tiring. It's not just about having to stand. It's also about having to keep your balance. Or that once you have to hold on to a pole to stay upright, you can no longer use a mobile phone, read a book, or newspaper, or drink a coffee, so the journey becomes boring. If these are the reasons, then a series of bum rests might, a bum rests might help. I've never had to use that Something word before in my against. life. Perhaps it's just because they have nowhere to put their bags, or they're paranoid about people stealing from their backpack. Maybe, though, it's more a question of status. The people who have a seat have a view, control of their personal space, and space for their bags, while the people who stand get nothing. There is no story they can tell themselves about the, their predicament that puts it in a better light. This raises an interesting question. What if there were some benefits to standing? In other words, is there a role for alchemy? I really like this question because it's one of those things sort of in the realm of the, the wedding ring, it's tradition thing. Mm -hmm. You can automatically assume without further analysis that you would rather sit than stand on a train. But the actual specific reason why is completely mysterious to you That's at right. first glance. Yep. Um, and he's come up with a lot of very good explanations for it. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, what's weird is that a lot of them are like solvable. Sure. A, a, lot, a lot of good explanations for it and ways to increase the status of standing. So yeah. that like implicitly when you do the calculation in your head, it's like, no, I think I'll stand. Like you didn't think about the reasons why. Like now you have a bum rest or now you have a place to put your bag because you're standing. But yep. it just becomes like that that much more high status to stand if you organize a train in such a way. Yeah. If you build a if you build a world in which that choice is meaningful as opposed to just frustrating. Yes. I think almost immediately afterward he yeah. Uh, imagine if commuter rail carriages were designed with the seats down the middle with places for passengers to stand down each side next to the windows, mm -hmm. um, which would mean that the people who are standing have a view and a ledge to put things yeah. on. And like, and that's, that's not a solution you would come to quote unquote, logically you have, you have to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, this is one of the other points about this book. It's like, Asking childish questions or, or questions that seem childish 
is something that we need to do more of. And that's that's what he gets at with like with the TED talk of his that we watched right before like yeah. turning on the microphones here, which was like we need what what did he call the role a chief design officer chief detail officer. chief detail officer to yeah. be clear this is not a plug for ted rory sutherland was the last good ted talk it was in 2010 thanks so, th- thanks yeah. for covering yeah. that yes <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that that whole situation has gotten much worse over time uh. My friend and mentor, Jeremy Bullmore, recalls a heated debate in the 1960s at the ad agency J. Walter Thompson about the reasons why people bought electric drills. (laughs) Well, obviously, you need to make a hole in something or put up shelves or something, and so you go out and buy a drill to perform the job, someone said, sensibly. Lewin Thomas, the copywriter son of the poet Dylan, was having none of this. I don't think it works like that at all. You see an electric drill in a shop and decide you want it, then you take it home and wander around your house looking for excuses to drill holes in things. That's you. I know. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm fully aware of this problem. Yeah, uh, so so, (laughs) Will and Thomas is absolutely right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, I need to put holes in things. Uh, No, I don't think it works like that at all, he said. (laughs) (laughs) That's the heated debate part. At all. It doesn't work like that at all, David. I like, this is one of those things. I have tried so many times to build a project from back to front yeah. where I start with what I want mm-hmm. and then I work backwards to what I actually need to get started. And I can do that for things that take like a day mm-hmm. or two days, which is why my schedules are now two days. But if I do a project that goes back any farther than that, it is absolutely hopeless for me to start at the beginning. <laughs> I cannot do it. I either start in the middle or I start at a beginning with a completely unknown endpoint. Uh-huh. And that beginning is very frequently the acquisition of things that will permit me to do the thing that I think I want to do maybe in the future, whatever that happens to be. I had to buy a Burke bar. Yeah, I bought a Burke bar. Yeah. Like I had a you good You don't know ex- what your deck's going to look like. I had an excuse to buy the Burke bar, and that was that I had a deck mm-hmm. full of two by sixes and those are very annoying to move with a regular pry bar. Yeah, and it's a dilapidated deck that needs to be like re-put, put back together. Oh, there was no question the deck yeah. needed to be removed. Yes. The thing is, you can actually do that job uh-huh. with a regular pry bar. It's just not nearly as much fun. <laughs> and I am a huge fan of very large hand tools. Oh yeah. Like I have, a, I have an oversized skill saw. Yeah. I have... A, um, I love using my rotary hammer as a drill, even though it's way <laughs> overpowered for that purpose. And the Burke bar is basically, it's, it's, it's a pry bar like anybody's ever seen, except that it's five feet long. Yeah, imagine a hockey stick. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a hockey stick where the stick part of it is made out of 12-gauge steel yeah. in a two-by-one box beam. Yeah, yeah. It, and at you, the end of it, you got a nail puller. Yeah, you can for good measure. Yeah, it's it's a nail puller. It, I took a cabinet off a wall with it. Cabinet puller. You, as you well. can lift yeah. a truck with it. Yeah, ca- truck puller too. Yes, yeah, correct. It's fucking awesome. It is. It was absolutely worth. Jacob thought it was a rip off at eighty bucks. I've spent way more on way less. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it's fine because yeah. I have a very well adjusted attitude towards tools now, mm-hmm. which is that I only want to use tools that I find enjoyable to use. Yes. Like I just don't, because there's no, I can in fact buy anything I need. So if I'm going to build it, I need to enjoy building it. That's right. Like that's, 
it's not. So it's not just about like, oh, I need, to, I have to put up some shelving or something like that. Yeah. No, I want to put holes in things. No, let's go. That's that's literally this this guy, uh, this someone else, yeah. this this sensible someone, Lewin Thomas, to put to make a hole in something, put up shelves or something. That's not why I'm building no, it. No, that's that is in fact incorrect. <laughs> that's not what I'm doing. So it would make sense for me to buy a cool drill. Actually, yeah. that's the weird thing is I don't have a cool drill. I just have. I have a set of Ryobis that are just, they're absolutely like lower mid tier mm-hmm. power tools. I probably ought to fix that. But before I think about that too hard, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on to the next one. <laughs> I'm going to take a, a hard the, detour but the, here. But the gist of that is really important. It is that you, again, logic led you to this extremely A to B bullshit excuse for what you were doing. And it it's clearly not what you were doing. Yeah. Like, unless you were explicitly, unless you bought the drill to save money that you have ulterior motives mm-hmm. like something else came into play at its worst neoliberalism takes a dynamic system like free market capitalism which is capable of spectacular creativity and ingenuity and reduces it to a boring exercise in how can we buy these widgets 10 percent cheaper it has also propelled a narrow-minded technocratic cast into power who achieve the appearance of expert certainty by ignoring large parts of what makes markets so interesting The psychological complexity of human behavior is reduced to a narrow set of assumptions about what people want, which means they design a world for logical rather than psychological people. And so we have faster trains with uncomfortable seats departing from stark modernist stations, (laughs) whereas our unconscious may well prefer the opposite. Slower trains with comfortable seats departing from ornate stations. With hot people pouring expensive wine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no 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 that's that's in his vision of the future uh, yeah that's, right. yeah yeah but even if you don't have that last part the hot people and the uh, yeah. hot wine it's fine like like give me some beauty he also talks about this when uh deciding on which house to choose so he has a section where he talks about his house yeah and he's like well you can buy like really nice art in in the form of the house, like get a get a good architect to build your house. No one pays attention to that stuff though, and therefore you can get these like beautiful houses at a deep discount because no one quantifies what good architecture is, or at least it's it's not priced as high as it might otherwise be. Yeah, he he bought a house by Frank Lloyd Wright, who's like the only architect anyone's ever heard of, and he he got it for a song comparatively mm. because that doesn't add to the square feet of the house. It yeah. doesn't increase in the number of bedrooms mm-hmm. or improve the neighborhood. Um, it just makes the house prettier and there's no way to measure that. Whereas the, the alternative is like, if you're just going to buy paintings, then the only thing that you're quantifying there, it w- the main thing you're quantifying there is who painted this. So a Picasso, he says like a Picasso costs like a hundred thousand times what something that you could get like by some street vendor would cost. Yeah. Because that's what you're focusing on when you're buying art. But when you're buying a house, it's different. How many bedrooms you got? Is it in a good school district? Where's the grocery store? Yeah, no one cares what it looks like. Yeah, exactly. Or if they do care what it looks like, they get annoyed when it's too pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so the lesson, dear listener, is develop eccentric tastes. Yeah. And then you can pay for those. And you get them for a song. Absolutely. 
The inherent flaws of mathematical models are well understood by good mathematicians, physicists, and statisticians, but very badly understood by those who are merely competent. Mm -hmm. Whenever I speak to a good mathematician, one of the first things I notice is they are often skeptical about the tools which other mathematicians are most enthused about. A most typical phrase might be, yeah, you could do a regression analysis, but the result is usually bollocks, as Matt alluded to earlier. An attendant problem is that people who are not skilled at mathematics tend to view the output of second-rate mathematicians with a high level of credulity and attach almost mystical significance to their findings. Bad maths is the palmistry of the 21st century. Yeah, this makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I, I feel that I might be one of the peddlers of this palmistry. <laughs> and it doesn't feel good, but... I you fucking know, like, hate science fans so much. This, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to forget who came up with the specific comparison, but no scientist knows pi out to more than four digits. It's just the science fans that know it out to 100. Mm-hmm. It's this, this absurd focus on an enthusiasm. Yeah, b- because it's impressive to the people who don't have any understanding of it. And, and it's like... It's mediocrity plus one. Like I, I can, I can attain a level of like, of perspective on science. Like, ooh, look at me! Look how impressive I am because I know pi out to ten digits, and that is impressive to people who like don't know it out to one digit. Like, <laughs> what is pi? What are you talking about? Uh, five. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So, so, is it impressive? Like, probably not. But sometimes it is, and that's what the science fans love. Impressing. I, they annoy me so much. I was going to do an entire podcast on science fans a while back, <laughs> uh, back when the format was a little different, but yeah. don't do it. Don't okay. do it. If you know pi out to 10 digits, just forget now. It, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, all right? <laughs> Put the fucking work in. And my favorite corollary, if it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. Correct. Yes. The number of people who think they understand statistics dangerously dwarfs those who actually do, and maths can cause fundamental problems when badly used. To put it crudely, when you multiply bullshit with bullshit, you don't get a bit more bullshit. You get bullshit bullshit squared. squared. Yeah, That's a very, very good lesson. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the, uh, like, I I think he goes into the double infanticide case here, where where somebody like, yeah, there it is. There it is just before this line. It's like somebody was charged with double infanticide because like they used stats to prove like, come on, no one, the alternative was it was um, sudden infant death syndrome that killed these two infants. Yeah. Um, Or it was the mother just killed these two infants because like she's terror mom. So, so they applied some math. Yeah. They they did some, some guy did some math and was like, all right, the math says that this can only happen in Britain once every hundred years. Pretty <laughs> yeah. unlikely, yeah. all right? And everyone in the courtroom is like, damn, look at those stats. He probably, you know what? I don't know. It doesn't say it in this book, but I bet this guy brought a chart into the courtroom. That would be, that would present as logical. Oh, yeah. 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 He probably had a real hot chart and everyone was like, damn, he's right. <laughs> Prosecute. Just to give you an idea of how bullshit this was, um, the quote here with the accurate with the accurate statistical comparison. So he goes through all of the the holes in the the specific math the guy was using. Yeah. 
where you compare the relative likelihood of double-caught death or double infanticide, the implied odds of her innocence fall from the thing that was originally cited, which was one in 73 million to perhaps two in three. Yeah, because because you're also comparing it to the given that people actually died, like infants <laughs> actually died. So like the wrong comparison is the one in 73 million. Like that's that's a that's an egregious misuse of stats there. Yeah. I thought it was funny yeah. as much as it was tragic. Yeah, yeah tragic too. Uh, cot death is the same thing as sudden infant death syndrome. The cot death is a British name for it. 10 times 1 does not equal 1 times 10. Imagine you have 10 roles to fill and you ask 10 colleagues to each hire one person. <laughs> Obviously, each person will try to recruit the best person they can find. That's the same as asking one person to choose the 10 best hires he can find, right? Wrong. Anyone choosing a group of 10 people will instinctively deploy a much wider variance than someone hiring one person. The reason for this is that with one person, we look for conformity, but with 10 people, we look for complementarity. I think this might be, in a strong list, might be my favorite idea in the entire book. Mm -hmm. And and you got to read the potato part next. What? You got to go for the potato. If you were only allowed to eat one food, you might choose the potato. Barring a few vitamins and trace minerals, it contains all the essential amino acids you need to build proteins, repair cells, and fight diseases. Eating just five a day would support you for weeks. (laughs) However, if you were told you could only eat 10 foods for the rest of your life, you would not choose 10 different types of potato. In fact, you may not choose potatoes at all. You would probably choose something more varied. Complementarity and not conformity. Your potato is your conformist. Don't be a potato. David, yeah. I, I texted you Matt. while I was reading this book and I was like, <laughs> David, I think I might be the potato. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I, I absolutely am too. Yeah. The world we live in It's a world po- for potatoes. We yeah. really yeah. like potatoes. Yeah. And, and and that that rubs me the wrong way, man. But you know what? Like I got to be a potato. Like this is the time in my life where I'm a potato and maybe that's okay for now. I mean, you picked a profession for which the potato is like the ideal candidate. That's right. And the more spherical, the better as well, (laughs) right? (laughs) We need the ideal potato. We don't want any like weird fuzz growing off of it or any like stuff. Like, no, just like plain potato. Colored? No, I don't want purple, purple potato. Got to have the white potato. Yeah. Now, you might expect a book of this kind of a chapter about the ultimatum game and other experimental game-theoretic investigations into the nature of trust and reciprocation. This book contains no such chapter. The reason for that is that the ultimatum game is stupid, and so is The Prisoner's Dilemma. These games exist in a context-free, theoretical universe with no real-life parallels. They both posit the idea of the one-shot exchange a transaction involving two strangers with no knowledge of the other's identity. In the real world, such transactions largely never take place. We choose to buy things in shops, not from random strangers in the street. That last part is requires a little bit of argument, but I do, I do appreciate this disdain for game theory because it, it butts up to that question of 10 times 1 equaling 1 times 10. It's the idea that there is a difference between an ensemble risk and a serial risk. It's the idea that, you know, the life doesn't exist outside of the equation. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a very dangerous way to live your life, other than in the specific 
wage slave capacity in which you decide to live it um, if that's the route you choose to go. Yeah. Should um, we explain what the ultimatum game is? No, I don't think it's necessary. Everybody's heard of game theory. Prisoner's dilemma, trolley right. problem, all right, that right, bullshit. Right. The, pro- the trolley problem I, I think I've complained about before. It, the trolley problem requires you to visualize a scenario you will absolutely never have to be in. So the fact that your brain can't logic its way through it mm. is completely reasonable. Sure. Like you don't, the, the fact that, you know, the pulling the switch is very easy because that's just math. The pushing the fat guy is just preposterous. Like there's too many questions. You can't, there's so much you can't know. The, the mathematical side that tries to posit that humans are irrational for some reason, they, they see this as a flaw that we are seeing problems in the formulation of this absurdly simplistic example. Yeah. And that's bad. You shouldn't do that. The, uh, the decision for the trolley pro- problem or pushing the fat guy um, that you can defend to your boss is, oh, I just fainted, so I couldn't make a decision there. Oh, okay, reasonable. Omission. Good. You yeah. did it. It's fine. No, the trolley problem drives me crazy. I don't, I don't like it at all. This book is full of very, very good examples of things. We did not get to more than two-thirds of the things that I've highlighted here. I highly recommend this book. Um, it's a good time. It is very, very good. Um, if you want to be uncomfortable. What? It depends on the life you lead. Um, <laughs> it's a good read. If, if you're a potato, you will be made uncomfortable by this book. That's fair. But then again, the world's built for you, so you have nowhere to go but up. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how it was in text form. Uh, the audible version of it's read by Rory Sutherland. He has a he has a very good voice for it, and it's a pretty breezy thing to get through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was pretty breezy going through the text version of it, too. Uh, he, he kept it pretty light with the footnotes and stuff like that. It, it was fun. Yep. Yeah. Um, anything we want to cover on the very way out the door. Oh, actually one thing. Mm. Um, I just saw here. One of the things that I like about Rory Sutherland is his emphasis on the positive application of marketing. A lot of the time marketing and advertising is portrayed even by people within the profession Mm -hmm. as sort of a ruse, as sort of a, a way to get one over on people. Right. And Sutherland's approach is much more refreshing about that. One of the, one of the quotes I have here is, A great deal of the effectiveness of advertising derives from its power to direct attention to favorable aspects of an experience in order to change the experience for the better. And this sort of signifies the way that he talks about most of the things in this book. When he is drawing attention to something, it is for the cause of improving the experience that you would have with that object. And I I appreciate that framing because it, one of the things that gets lost in marketing a lot of the time, or at least in conversation about marketing, is the fact that it is an improvement of the product you are selling. Oh, yeah. It is, it is a method by which you can enhance the experience by informing the consumer about what that experience should ideally be. And that's, again, that's, that's lost rather frequently. Um, lost enough that marketing is generally seen rather cynically. Yeah, and, and I I see it cynically because it's like, come on, you're trying to get me apart with my money? Like, that's not very nice. I want to keep this money, so thanks. I'm not going to watch your commercial. But you're well, actually, you, like, improving the product for me if I'm going to buy it. 
Well, and and bringing that specific utilitarian uh, view to it, uh, marketing can seem bad, and you can actually see it as something to fight. Uh-huh. It's like I'm not going to be lulled into enjoying this, yeah, just because you know I got over this relatively recently with Apple products, um, uh, because there are some flaws with Apple products, but it turns out you can actually ignore those problems. <laughs> And it's that's of no co- that's it costs you absolutely nothing to do so. You can just enjoy using them more, <laughs> specifically in the mindset in yeah. which they are constructed and advertised. There you go. Um, assuming, of course, you're willing to shell out for them. But I would argue that given given the lifespan of this stuff, it's it really doesn't cost that much. And being an Apple fanboy is really not that bad, honestly. <laughs> um, it's very popular nowadays, anyway. But it's it's just funny, and I don't I don't always do it with Apple. Apple's just the example that comes to mind. But enjoying the stuff that you use and the events that you go to, and all you know, being discerning can have value, but it's only seated in the capacity for it to improve the positive aspects of the things that you do and use. It's hard to choose to be that way, though. It is. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah, you really have to manually override your brain in order to do that. But if you can, that that's, I mean, good for you. Yeah, it's and that's the cynicism of the modern world, which mm. cynicism is a pretty logical thing in and of itself. It's, it's a belief that everyone is not merely self-centered but selfish and is trying to extract <laughs> as much good from the world as possible. You end up with a really shitty vent. You... You end up with a bad vantage point. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but in some in some ways, like you can actually like that. That's one of the theses of this book. It's like we can we can make something from nothing. One of the ways we can do that is with a good ad campaign. Yeah. So like like let's get these people to enjoy the product more. Or like another one was like let's remove the record function from the Walkman. Like, oh God, that's another thing. I wish I had we'd had time to talk about the yeah. concept of affordance is really yeah. is really important. Uh, can, can we? Yeah, you can talk. I don't, yeah, I don't, let's let's hit the let's hit this. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if I can find it real yeah. quick. The, this segment's too long to read, and in, it's entirely. But basically, when Sony came out with the Walkman, the original design had a record button, and it was removed. Mm-hmm. Marita, the guy who came up with the idea to remove it, thought the presence of a recording function would confuse people about what the new device was for. Was it for dictation? Should I record my vinyl record collection onto cassette? Should I record live music? In the same way that <laughs> McDonald's omitted cutlery from its restaurants to make it obvious how you were supposed to eat its hamburgers by removing the recording function from Walkmans, Sony produced a product that had a lower range of functionality but a far greater potential to change a behavior. By reducing the possible applications of the device to a single use, it clarified what the device was for. The technical design term for this is an affordance. And I really like the idea of affordance, mm-hmm. like making it more obvious how you are supposed to use something. That focus of purpose is very powerful, even for things that you you technically understand and intuit. I mean, the, the cell phone has sort of ruined this to some degree because the cell phone is the Swiss army knife of the 21st century. Um, but most of the things that most people, most of the things people enjoy using and doing are very singular in nature. Yeah. Uh, the purity is helpful. 
because you're not scatterbrained while you're considering them. And you don't have to, um, I'm trying to think of a good tool that represents this. And I'm not going to because that's the way things are right now. Um, what, what about just a regular old pocket knife versus a Swiss army knife? Sure. You know, you... Uh, fuck. I'm sorry. I, well, I, I okay. got trapped in this tool question. I, I, I might have an example. So, like, when I, when I make the decision to go out to a restaurant, I don't want a big menu. Like, I already made the decision. I'm going to eat at a restaurant. Yeah. Please make this menu small because I've already made my decision. I don't want to, like, experience more decision fatigue here. That's, that's a strange one that has people on both sides of it. Like, I very much admire the five guys in an Alberger model of just having like this, this is the thing we make. Yes. You can get it with like two patties, yeah. but yeah. this is what you're getting. You, you came here. You made the decision. Yeah. Like, uh, and I don't, I really don't like that about places like Chili's, like where you, <laughs> you have you, an infinite menu. You, you just get absolutely anything at a Chili's. <laughs> like what, it, what am I supposed to do here? Right. Right. And uh, like the, the so, benefit- so you stay at the table, like staring at your menus for like, 10 minutes like we're supposed to be talking right now yeah and yeah. i'm never satisfied with what i get because there's almost certainly <laughs> something, something better yeah something that would have been better and those places thrive on their capacity to cater to groups mm, yeah where no one can decide what they want collectively because people are uh, i didn't think about that but yeah no that's that that is the reason for that you're absolutely right yeah it is well and what's funny is that that's playing off another psychological problem which is the one where we assume that people are going to be non-conforming um mm. in this specific way where unless someone has very specific food preferences you can go to most restaurants and it'll be fine and the people who are not like that are too finicky and you should remove them from your life um dang yeah. Ooh, it's intense. not it's not worth it <laughs> look if they are valuing their specific food preferences over your company yeah. that's a red flag okay like there are foods I would prefer to eat and prefer not to eat. If I want to see someone, I'll, I'll fucking put up with a second option. Okay. That's, that's fine. Yeah. Like you have prioritized the wrong thing. <laughs> if you are putting your foot down about food options <laughs> is all I'm saying. Um, I understand that mm-hmm. as an aspergic person, which is a term that he uses in this book <laughs> to describe. <laughs> aspergic design. Yeah. Aspergic design. <laughs> oh, this is a really good book. All right, you got to get out of here, Matt. Uh, Thank you for reviewing this book with me. It's been a pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Matt's going to go out and eat food he doesn't like with people he enjoys. What are you talking about? Dude, I picked this place. Oh, okay. (laughs) Never mind. Win-win all around. He's got it covered. It's a Mexican restaurant with a tequila bar. Sick. What's not not to like? I I have no idea. I'm sure someone doesn't. All right. Everyone likes that. Yeah. Well. That's... Anyway. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Read this book. It's good. <laughs> <laughs>